Larry is a pastor at Christ Covenant Church, Winona Lake, Indiana. They are a sister church with us in Sovereign Grace. He has been part of the pastoral team there for over 40 years. And we are so glad that your church releases you and encourages you to serve other churches as you have with us. Uh, and now we're filled with anticipation for you to bring God's word to us. So would you warmly welcome Dr. Larry McCall. Thank you, Pastor Kyle. It, it has been our delight to be here. Gladine and I have been anticipating our visit here for close to a year. Um, why don't we just ask God's help again? I'm feeling my need for his assistance this morning, so join me in praying. Heavenly Father, here we are in your presence, realizing that we have no right to be in your throne room in our own name, and so we come in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only one who stands between us. And as we come into your presence, we, we know our need. We're aware that we need your grace today. So would you empower us as we look into your word to see both the meaning of your Bible and, Lord, that your spirit would prompt us to mold our lives in conformity to you and your will. Holy Spirit, come and have your way with us today, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, whether you are 8 or 88, when you reflect on your own childhood, uh, for some in the room, childhood wasn't that many years ago. For some of us, it, it was a while ago. <laughs> but when you reflect back on your own childhood, was there something maybe a grandparent or another older person taught you that stuck? You know, may, maybe it was something... Uh, just one of those skills that are handy in life, like how to make chocolate chip cookies. I, I think that's a wonderful life skill. I, I'm gifted at eating them. <laughs> or maybe it was something like, maybe you had a grandpa that taught you how to catch fish. But you look back at your childhood and you can remember something a grandparent or another significant older person taught you. Or maybe it was something more significant than baking cookies or catching fish. Maybe it was some life lesson that mattered in your life. I mean, things like, how do you show courtesy? How do you show respect when you meet an older person for the first time? Or maybe you had an older person teach you the importance of being a person of your word, how important it is to keep your word. You know, I think all of us, no matter what our age is, we can think back to something an older person taught us that made a difference. Now, to flip that coin over, all of us, all of us adults in this room have young people in our lives. They might be just the kids here in the church, the kids here at Green Tree. Even if you're not directly involved in teaching them, you see them. You see them before and after services. You see them at church gatherings. Maybe you know their parents or their grandparents. You're connected to the kids here at Green Tree. And for many of you here today, when I talk about the kids in your life, your minds are going to your own children. Or for us older folks, maybe our grandchildren, or even for some, great-grandchildren. Each of us adults has the opportunity, and I would even say the responsibility, 
to pass on key lessons to the next generation. So what are we teaching the kids in our lives? What should we be teaching the kids in our lives? Maybe we can teach them skills just like that older person taught us. It's good to pass on that heritage of making chocolate chip cookies or catching fish. Or maybe we need to teach the kids in our lives things like keeping your word and being respectful to older people. But when you think of all the things, all the things we could be teaching the next generation, what would you say is one of the most crucial? What would you say is one of the most foundational, the most central lessons you and I can be teaching the kids in our lives? Whether they're children here at Green Tree, or our own children, grandchildren, what should we be teaching them as of most importance? How about this one? Psalm 34:11. It says, "Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord." And I'm looking at faces right now and I'm wondering how many of you are thinking, "Really?" <laughs> Really? That wasn't what came to my mind. I mean, that wasn't the first thing that popped into my mind, like, I should be teaching my kids, I should be teaching my grandkids, I should be teaching those kids here at Green Tree the fear of the Lord. And yet, even though that's not prominent in most of our thinking, let, let me say to you that that topic of the fear of the Lord is not some obscure topic tucked away in the back closets of the Old Testament somewhere. The fear of the Lord is actually a topic that's quite prominent in the Bible. Now, anybody, this is risky, anybody want to make a guess about how many times in the Bible, old and new together, about how many times in the Bible we find the phrase fear of God or fear of the Lord? Any, anybody want to take a stab at this? 200, wow, that's really generous. <laughs> I would have guessed something like 20 or 30. Some of you are much more optimistic than I. It's over 150 times. Over 150 times in the Bible, we find the phrase fear of the Lord or the fear of God. My friends, that is not an obscure topic. It's a very prominent theme all through the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Let me, I just quoted for you Psalm 3411. Let me just read what leads up to that, okay? I'm going to read Psalm 34, and if you have a copy of the Bible with you on your device or a print copy, you can follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. So this is Psalm 34. The Word of God says, I will bless the Lord at all times, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Sounds like something we sang today, isn't it? I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who looked him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So I want to ask you some questions this morning, and we'll look into God's word to find answers for each of these. But what do we mean? What do we mean when we say the fear of the Lord? Now let's, let's be candid with one another. Probably most of us have a rather foggy idea of what that means. Our understanding of what the fear of the Lord is might not seem crystal clear in our minds that we could explain it to someone. And there's reasons for this. Um, I'm not picking on Green Tree Church, but when's the last time you heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord? I've been preaching for about 50 years, and it's been a while since I preached this in our church back in Indiana. Yeah, there's not a lot of sermons on the fear of the Lord today. It doesn't, as they say, play well in Peoria. <laughs> How many books have you read on the fear of the Lord? Don't, don't feel bad if you're having trouble coming up with some titles because, quite frankly, there's not been a lot of books ever written on the fear of the Lord. There are some. I, most of you have heard the name John Bunyan, right? The guy that wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. One of his lesser-known books was on the fear of the Lord. So that was 350 years ago. <laughs> you can still find it online, by the way. And in our generation, there have been a few... Our uh, departed friend Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book on the fear of the Lord called The Joy, The Joy of Fearing God. I commend that book to you, The Joy of Fearing God. But very few Christians in our culture, in our day, have heard sermons on the fear of the Lord, and even fewer have ever read books on the fear of the Lord. And so this whole idea of what that means is just, it's just fuzzy. It's just kind of fuzzy in our minds, and this morning we want to bring some clarity to that. I think one reason why we don't devote more attention to that is, we, especially when we're thinking about what are we teaching our kids, those kids in your lives, the kids here at Green Tree, your, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, you say, well, Larry, why, why would I teach them the fear of the Lord? I, I don't want these kids to be afraid of God. I don't want them to think he's some sort of celestial bully. And, and so we, we want to, you know, just kind of soften the topic, maybe not talk about it at all or talk about it in a way that seems, you know, like less intimidating. <laughs> and so we say things like, well, the fear of the Lord, it just, it just means, you know, having a respect for God. Now, it clearly does mean a respect for God, but... Does saying the fear of the Lord just means having a respect for God, is that sufficient? Does that really grab it? You know, we can think of people in our lives that we think I really respect or respected so-and-so. Maybe you've had an older person in your life, maybe a godly older aunt, for instance. And you think, I always respected aunt so-and-so. Or maybe you had a significant teacher somewhere in your background, and that teacher left a mark on you, and you say, oh, I always respected Mrs. So-and-so, or I always respected Mr. So-and-so. 
Or maybe we can think of people that we never knew personally, at least I kind of doubt it, uh, people like the late Queen of England. Anybody here friends with Queen Elizabeth? Okay. You know, but we, we saw her, you know, on TV and read articles about her, and, and, and a lot of us watched her funeral, right? And a lot of people commented what a respectable lady she was. You think, well, I respected the queen, late Queen of England. But when you say the same language about God, are, are we talking on the same level? Are we saying that fearing God is kind of like the way I respected my aunt or that school teacher or the late Queen of England? Friends, God's greatness and God's grace is not only greater than any aunt we have had or any teacher we've had or any queen that's lived in this earth, but it is infinitely greater. And, and somehow it's saying, well, fear of God just means having a respect for him. Does that really cut it? You know, a fascinating exercise that I would commend to you is look in the Bible for stories, accounts, where people had, as it were, a face-to-face -face encounter with God. There are some of these in the Bible where people had, I'm speaking figuratively, but as it were, they had a face-to-face -face encounter with God. When you read those stories in the Bible, do you see those people that had face-to-face -face encounters with God coming away saying, no, that was really cool. You know, I think I could learn to respect him. Is, is, is that what we see? Is that the response of people who encountered God, that they say, you know, I think I could learn to respect him. There are a number of these stories in the Bible, encounters with God, but let me just pick one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, and I want you to think through with me what kind of reaction, what kind of response these people had when they encountered God face to face. Let, let me start with the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet recounts this encounter by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other antiphonally and said, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if I'm reading this right, the other side of the seraphim would echo back, Holy, 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 holy. On and on. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. By the way, the writer of the Gospel of John. John says in chapter 12 that Isaiah saw Christ. He saw the pre-incarnate, the pre-Bethlehem Christ that day. Isaiah didn't come away from that face-to-face -face encounter with God and say, 
Now that was neat. I can hardly wait to tell my friends. Isaiah came undone. He came undone. Woe is me. How about one from the New Testament? If you were to read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say, who were some of Jesus' closest friends during his earthly ministry? During those three, three and a half years, Jesus had in Palestine his public ministry. Who were some of his closest friends? Who knew him the best? John the Apostle would have made the short list. John the Apostle was one of Jesus' closest friends during his earthly ministry. But when John was an old man, he was exiled to the island of Patmos between Greece and what we know today as Turkey. He was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And old John, lonely, maybe discouraged, was given a vision of what was to come and was commissioned to tell the seven churches of Asia, Turkey, what was to come. But what I want to read to you now is John's account of what that was like when he saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus glorified, when he saw his old friend Jesus now glorified, what was his reaction? Now, friends, when I read this passage, I, I'm going to ask you for some liberty. When I read Revelation chapter 1, I, I get the distinct sense that the old apostle was grasping for words. He's, he's grasping for word pictures. He's grasping for simile and metaphor in this desperate attempt of how do, I, how do I tell you in human language what I saw that day? How do I describe the indescribable? And so I would like today here at Green Tree to read Revelation 1 as I in my imagination, and I'm confessing that, how I imagine John would say it if he were here standing before you. Revelation 1, verse 12. The apostle John recounts, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand one like a son of man. A, a reference, by the way, to the book of Daniel. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head, they were white, they were white, they were white like... Like, like wool, like, like, like snow. His eyes, his eyes, they, 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 were, they, were like, they were like a flame of fire. And his feet, his feet, they were, they, were, they, were, they were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice, his voice, his voice, it was, it was, it was like... It was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, his face, it was, it, was, it was like the sun shining in all of its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
John fainted. He was overwhelmed, undone when he saw his old friend Jesus only. His old friend Jesus is now glorified. He is the God-man. He is glorified. And John saw Jesus, and he says, I fell down as though dead. And by the way, I'm not reading the rest of that chapter this morning for sake of time, but what a beautiful picture of our Christ. When he walked over to John and put his hand on John and says, Don't be afraid, John. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I hold the keys. I hold the keys of death and hate. I'm in charge, John. It's okay. But when John saw the glorified Jesus, he didn't come away and say, oh, I can hardly wait to tell my friends this was so great. <laughs> he says, I fell down as though dead. Now, the reason, my friends, I read to you from Isaiah and read to you the account of John was this. When we say, well, the fear of God just means, you know, kind of like having a respect for God. It doesn't do it. That it's not adequate. It, it doesn't grab the essence of what that means. Because when people in the Bible, and we haven't even talked about people like Moses and Ezekiel and, and Peter, when, when they encountered God, people that encountered God face to face ended up face down. When people encounter God face to face, they ended up face down. They were overwhelmed, undone. Maybe we need to rethink through our definition of what we're talking about, the fear of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson said this in his book, Growing Grace. He, he tried to define the fear of God this way. He says, that indefinable mixture. I always want to say, thank you, Dr. Ferguson. <laughs> You're defining by saying the indefinable <laughs> That indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. Here is my own feeble attempt to define the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is that overwhelming, soul-gripping awe of who God is, what he has done that profoundly affects the attitude of one's heart and the actions of one's life. Overwhelming, soul-gripping, life-changing. So back to the issue. Why is the fear of the Lord one of the most important lessons we can teach the next generation? Why is this so important? Why is this so crucial to teach the children in our lives the fear of the Lord? Why is that so important? Well, the honest truth, the painful truth is people, yes, you, yes, your kids, yes, your grandkids, we all were born self-centered. We were all born with this egocentric, this self-centered view of life. I know it's hard for some people to accept, and I'm a grandparent seven times over, and yesterday I enjoyed immensely my time with my fellow grandparents here at Green Tree, and we talked quite openly. In fact, I enjoyed so much that conversation yesterday, I'm going to repeat a little piece of it. It's hard sometimes for us older people, us grandparents, to look at our grandchildren and think anything negative at all, you know, and, and to say your grandchildren are self-centered. You know, some grandparents are like, oh, not, not my little granddaughter. She's such a sweetheart. 
And so when I encounter people like that, I love to, I love to use this illustration. You folks who were with us yesterday, thank you for your patience. I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> if you've ever had a two-year-old boy in your life, and a lot, you're already laughing, some of you. Um, <laughs> if you've had a two-year-old boy in your life, maybe your own son or a nephew or your grandson, do you remember that taking that two-year-old boy and say, okay, buddy, I'm going to teach you an important life lesson. I'm going to teach you an important life lesson. Now, I want you to pay attention to me. I'm going to say something, and then I want you to repeat it. So look in my eyes, you know, and, and they always have trouble with that. No, no. Look in my eyes. I'll say something, and you repeat it. You ready, buddy? Mine! Okay, now you say it. Do, do you remember teaching your two-year-old that? Why didn't you have to teach your two-year-old that? Because it happens so naturally. And our synonym for naturally is sinfully. <laughs> you see, that two-year-old little guy in your life was born self-centered, wasn't he? You know where he got that? If you're his parent, they got it from you. And guess where you got it? You got it from your parents. And they got it from their parents, 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 the whole way back to Adam and Eve. The only exception in the history of humanity was Jesus Christ, who was born sinless. Every other human being, every other human being, including your kids, your grandkids, the kids here at Green Tree, have been born self-centered. Born naturally, sinfully assuming, I'm at the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me. Hmm. It happened back in the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to read to you now from Genesis chapter 3. And this is the serpent in his sneaky schemes of seducing Eve. The serpent said to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be open. Listen to this. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The serpent said, you will be like God. You hear what he's telling Eve? Why be satisfied with obeying God when you could just be God? Be your own God. Be in charge of your own life. Wouldn't that be better than obeying this gracious God? He left out the word gracious. My friends, when Eve took that fruit and gave it to Adam who was with her and he ate, how did that turn out? Every human being since then has been born with this gross distortion that we're at the center of the universe. It's my life. It's my life. I bet all of us have said that at some point in our lives. It's my life. Someone tries to tell you to change in a certain way, to stop doing something or start doing something, and we protest. Maybe you said it this morning. Maybe it was 40 years ago. But somewhere along the line you said, it's my life. I heard a girl say that one time, a teenage girl in our church, and I was with her parents when she said it, and I, 
I looked at that girl and I said, I hope with some pain in my voice, I said, where in the world did you get that idea? Where in the world did you get that idea? This, here's where it gets scary, friends. That sinful, egocentric perspective on life is not only tolerated in our current culture, but it's taught, it's celebrated, it's passionately defended. Today's children are encouraged, and I quote some of these. You could finish some of these with me. Decide what's right for yourself. I know some of you can finish this one. Be true to your self. Huh. Find your own sexual identity. And that deceptively sounding innocuous, follow your own heart. And if any of us, if any of us challenge that, if we challenge that and say, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, that, that's not what God says in his word, what kind of reaction do we get from the people teaching that? Usually they get very angry. Maybe you've had this happen to you personally, where someone gets angry and says, who do you, who do you think you are? Telling someone else how to live her life. Telling someone else how to live his life. Why are you so narrow-minded? Why are you so bigoted? And now, why are you such a hater? Because there's this underlying assumption in our culture that every individual determines his own identity. Every individual in our culture charts his own course in life. Every, we would say theologically, what they're saying is, Everybody is his or her own God. You're your own God. You decide what's true for you. You decide what's true and false for you. You decide what's moral and immoral for you. You decide what your own identity is. And if we try to teach differently, even if we do so graciously, humbly, we're met with a resistance. It's because when we challenge that, we are going back to the very heart of sin itself. We're going back to the very foundation of the arrival of sin in the human race, which was the autonomy of man, the self-rule of man. The serpent lied to Eve and said, you can be self-ruling, you can be autonomous. And that lie has been passed down, passed down, passed down, and he's still trying that lie to this day. And yet God's word is clear. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When God's word is ignored, people's perspective on everything gets screwed up. When people ignore, listen, God is not only the creator of all things, God is the definer of all things. God made all things. God also gave everything its place, its definition, its purpose. When we ignore God's definition of things and try to come up with our own understanding of truth and falsehood, morality, immorality, significance and insignificance, when we try to determine that on our own, our understanding of things is all screwed up. And when that understanding of all things, that perspective of all things, that world and life views all screwed up, our lives get all screwed up. 
And so if we leave God out of the picture, if we have no fear of God, not only is our thinking messed up, our very lives are messed up. A lot of people have memorized little portions of Romans 3. And I am fascinated to read Romans 3, recognizing what Paul did there. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, when he got to chapter 3, he's trying to help us understand how screwed up people are. And so he pulls quotes, these snippets. We would say in our culture, sound bites. He pulls these sound bites out of the Old Testament and he lines them up. A significant portion of Romans 3 is this lineup of these sound bites from the Old Testament. Let me read them to you. It starts in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to, sh swift to shed blood. In, the, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. As how does Paul take this ugly, stinking list how does he summarize that? And so he's just pulled all these quotes from the Old Testament, and he's going to draw a summary. He's going to say what that all means is this. How does he end his list? He says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's his summary. He's just recounted for us how screwed up we are without God and his grace. If we leave God, his word, his grace, his greatness out of our understanding of life, if we just leave him on the sidelines, our thinking is screwed up, our lives are screwed up, and the summary of it all, the summary of this whole mess, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So my friends, what's the antidote? What's the solution? A lot of you are familiar with the book of Proverbs. Some of you enjoy reading it. Maybe some of you take a proverb every day. I know people that read one chapter from the book of Proverbs every day, and so every month, there's 31 of them, 31 chapters, you read through the whole book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. Do you know a verse that sets the tone for the whole book of Proverbs? Here's a dad the collector, the writer of these wise sayings. He's doing it for his sons. And right in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, this kind of sets the course, this kind of sets the tone, the direction for the whole collection of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord, there it is again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So, in other words, if you're going to understand anything, I don't care what it is, history, anthropology, morality, if you're going to understand anything properly, you have to begin with God. You have to begin with God and his right as our creator, his right as our sustainer, his right as the definer of all things. If you don't start with God, if you don't start in the right place, you're never going to end up in the right place. You've got to start in the right place. So this dad tells his sons, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the foundation. Start there, my son. If our children and our grandchildren 
The kids here at Green Tree are going to understand what is true, what is false. If they're going to understand what is moral and what is immoral, if they're going to understand what matters and what doesn't matter, they must begin with God. Seeing who God is, hearing what God says, believing his word. So how's that supposed to happen? How are the kids here at Green Tree? How are your kids, your nieces, your nephews, your younger siblings, your grandkids? How are they ever going to learn the fear of the Lord? How are they ever going to get this theocentric, this God-centered view of life and eternity? Well, ultimately, my friends, it is a gift from the hands of a graciously sovereign God. The new covenant, as promised in Jeremiah 32, goes like this. God speaks. <coughs> God speaks to his prophet Jeremiah, and he said, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of God in their hearts and they, that they may not turn from me. So you're saying, how can that child, that teenager, that young person in my life, how can he or she ever get the fear of God? Ultimately, it has to be a gift from the hand of God himself. So you know what we do as older people in their lives? You know what we do? We pray. We pray to our gracious king. We pray to our heavenly father. And we say, Lord, my son, my daughter, my grandson, my granddaughter, the kids in my class at Green Tree, I want them so much to know you. I want them so much to fear you. Would you give them new hearts? Would you take out their hearts of stone? Would you give them a heart of flesh that loves your son, Jesus Christ? Would you give them eyes to see your glory in the face of your son? Would you give them ears to hear the good shepherd calling their name? Do your miracle of grace. So we pray. But praying for the work of God in the lives of the kids doesn't mean we go passive. The Bible also says that the fear of the Lord can be taught. The aged Moses, <coughs> now over 100 years old, giving one of his last speeches to the children of Israel out there in the wilderness before they headed toward the promised land at last, he said this, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, <laughs> and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. So we pray for the fear of the Lord in the lives of the kids, but we also teach them. We teach them the fear of the Lord. So how do we do that? How do we teach the next generation to fear the Lord? I'm going to give you three assignments here, and they're all related, so if you're taking notes, there's three. The first one is learn. Use your mind. 
I think we all know that you cannot give what you don't have. You, you can't give what you don't have. And so if we're going to pass on this fear of the Lord, it needs to be in our hearts. And so we need to learn. We need to learn everything we can about God. Devote yourself to continue to learn about God, his greatness, his grace. And I'm speaking as an older person to some of you who are in my generation. And I want to encourage you to never retire from learning about God and his ways. I've had the privilege of serving a church in the same town as two of my alma maters, where I got my bachelor's, where I got my master's. And um, almost all my professors are, have been in heaven for a long time. Uh, that, that's the age I am. But a couple of them have lived into their 90s. And one of my former profs uh, was now widowed for the second time. He, he lived in a nursing home very close to our, our place. And he called me one day. This is my former Bible professor. Keep that in mind. This is my former Bible professor, now in his 90s. He called me up and said, Larry, this is Dr. Stoll. Uh, could you come over to the nursing home? I want to treat you to lunch. Bring your Bible. I want to talk to you about some Bible passages. And I'm thinking, he wants to talk to me? <laughs> he's, he's my professor, you know? So I said, you know, I want to respect this man. So I said, sure, Dr. Stoll. So I went over to the nursing home and sure enough, went to the lunchroom, the dining room, and there he was sitting at this little table in his wheelchair, empty chair on the other side waiting for me. So I sat down and he breaks out his Bible and he starts asking me questions. What do you think about this passage? And, and what do you think this one means? And, and apparently I started smiling because he stopped and he says, why are you smiling? <laughs> and I said, well, Dr. Stoll, here you are in your 90s and you're still wanting to learn. And he says, Larry, do you know how Peter ends his second letter? And I said, well, yes, sir, I do. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he said, he said, do you see retirement age on that verse? I said, no, sir. He goes, okay, back at it. <laughs> I thought, I'm thinking, I want to be like him when I grow up. You know? Here's this guy in his 90s saying, I want to learn. I want to know Christ. And I want to encourage those of us who are card-carrying senior saints, don't, return, don't retire from learning about Christ. Learn everything you can. Keep on learning. And when we get to heaven, I think we'll just keep on going because Christ is infinite. I don't think we'll ever get to the end of him. So I think that'll be one of the delights, one of the joys of eternity is continuing to learn more and more and more of our precious Savior. But learn. Learn everything you can. Read your Bible Read your Bible regularly. Look for the attributes of God when you read your Bible. Look for the attributes of his greatness, the attributes of his grace. May they become part of who we are, that we have this awe of God, that he is, he is great and he is good. That becomes just part of us, that if our kids, grandkids, great-grandkids would prick us, we, we would be bleeding Bible. You know, just that we're learning. We're learning everything we can about him. The second word is teach. I'm talking about those of us adults interacting with the younger generation. We learn everything ourselves that we can about the Lord, his gospel, the work of Christ. But then we teach. We use our words to impact the coming generation. 
And let me just say to those of you who are raising your kids right now, let me strongly encourage you to have planned times of teaching your kids. Whatever you call it in your family, you call it family devotions or Bible time, it's not important to me what you call it in your family, but have time, whether it's every day or three times a week or whatever. I'm not going to legislate this, but I just want to encourage you, be intentional to have times where you're teaching your kids the Word of God. I love visiting our daughter and son-in-law. They have four kids, and our son-in-law is so faithful. Breakfast time, bedtime, he's teaching our grandkids the way of God. And I, I love sitting there supporting him quietly, you know, as, as Josh leads his family in the ways of Christ. Teach your kids the ways of Christ. Use your words. Grandparents, let's be intentional grandparents. Let's not just keep it on a superficial level, but let's interact with our grandkids about things that matter for eternity. Use your words. Spontaneously, there's going to be opportunities that we can seize to teach the younger generation about Christ. So, first word was learn, use your mind. Second word, use your words, teach. And the third word is model, use your life. That we adults can use our lives to show the next generation the value of Jesus Christ, that he is precious to us, and that he should be precious to them. That we are in awe of God, and they too should join us as those who are in awe of God. That we use our lives, the priorities in our lives, the passions in our lives, our perspective on what matters in life. One more question, and that is this. What are the benefits what are the benefits of having the fear of the Lord? Some people avoid this subject of the fear of the Lord because they think the fear of the Lord sounds so repressive, so restrictive. I don't want to give the younger generation, I don't want to make them feel too heavy, you know, and this is such a heavy burden, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has the opposite effect. And rather than being restrictive in some way, it helps us in so many ways. And the first one is the fear of the Lord gives perspective on life and eternity. You know, I quoted Psalm 17 earlier, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You get to Proverbs 9, and it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That theme is picked up in other places in the Bible. And in Psalm 111.10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. And so one more time, friends, if the kids in our lives, our kids, our grandkids, nieces, nephews, kids here at Green Tree, whoever the kids are in your life, if the kids in our lives are going to have a proper understanding of life and eternity, if they're going to have what we would call a biblical worldview, if they're going to understand what is true, what is false, what is moral, what is immoral, what's important, what's not important, we have to begin with God. Who is he? What has he said? What does he want us to believe? How does he want us to live? We have to teach the kids a God-centered view of all things. I think that gets to the heart of what the fear of the Lord is. It's understanding that he is at the center of all things, and he is to be honored in our lives. It gives perspective that way. Another benefit of the fear of the Lord is that it stirs resolve to resist temptation to live for God's glory. 
The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Let's be honest. Let's be candid. Kids as well as adults, but kids are constantly being pulled on and pushed on to go the way of the world. What's going to empower your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter, your niece, your nephew? What's going to strengthen that young person in your life to say no? To say no. When the world and Satan pull and push on them, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord gives us strength to say no to those things. When our kids were growing up, (coughs) I used to say to them, one of the most profound things you can learn in life is this. He is God, and you're not. (laughs) And I'm not. You know, that's so clear, isn't it? He's God, I'm not. I mean, the world gets up backwards. (laughs) And so if we understand that he is God and I'm not, when the world's pushing on us and pulling on us, we can say, no, I want to honor my creator God. I want to honor my savior God. And so, like Paul said in Titus 2, we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And then thirdly, the fear of the Lord brings joy. It brings joy. It brings freedom that God has designed for us. Someone else challenged me to think about this a couple years ago, and as a grandfather, it's been on my heart. Our world, our current culture here in North America is teaching kids, actively teaching kids, and some of you can verify this, especially if you're in the public school system as a teacher or even involved parent. Um, Right now, there's a great emphasis in our culture to teach the kids, you need to decide your own truth. You need to decide for yourself your own morality. You need to decide for yourself your own identity. And in doing that, do you see what's happening? We're putting God's stuff on the shoulders of children. That's a load way too heavy for the kids to carry. They were never designed, kids were never designed independently from God to decide truth and error to decide morality and immorality. And yet the world's telling them, you decide. You need to determine this. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder why there's an escalation of depression among young people right now? Why there's been such a noticeable increase in suicides among young people? Is it any wonder that we're putting on kids burdens that only God can carry? Only God can carry that. God is the designer. God is the describer. God is the the definer of all things. He's the one who tells us what is true and what is false. He is the one who tells us what is moral and what is immoral. He's the one who tells us what is significant and what is insignificant. And when we teach children to fear the Lord, it takes off that burden. That that's God's job. That's God's role to tell us truth and error, to tell us what matters for eternity. So teaching the children in our lives the fear of the Lord is so freeing. Psalm 34, we read it earlier. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. Those who fear him have no lack. And so as Christian parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, whoever you are, 
we have this wonderful privilege to draw the minds, the hearts of the children in our lives to God by His grace, opening their hearts so that they too would join us in fearing the Lord. There are probably some here today or listening to my voice who have yet to bend the knee to King Jesus. Friends, if you are here today, I want to remind you that Satan, the serpent, was lying to Eve. He was lying to Eve when he said, it would be better if you were your own God. And he's lying to you today. If you think I would rather chart my own course in life, I would rather be the determiner of, on my own of what's true, false, moral, immoral. Let me share with you a passage I read recently that just grabbed my heart. This is from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. And God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what, it, here it is, listen to me carefully. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. What an evil, bitter thing it is for you. And so young person, adult, if you're still living as if you can chart your own course in life, then no one's going to tell you what to do. Let me just share with you the word of God. God himself says, that's a bitter road to walk. That's a bitter road to walk. Why would you continue down a bitter road when you can humble yourself before God and seek his forgiveness through Jesus Christ and know forgiveness, to know freedom? What a blessing to fear the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ and the grace found in him. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us today to humble ourselves in your presence, both your greatness and your grace, and that you would do your work in each of our lives, not only for our own sake, Lord, but for many of us, we have the privilege, the responsibility to pass this on to the coming generations. Help the folks here at Green Tree to be faithful in that task of teaching the next generation the fear of the Lord. And may you be honored, Lord, to turn the hearts of the children toward you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.